Welcome to uh, our workshop again on Marriage 101. This is session five now, okay? Let me pray for us as we open up um, our time in God's Word, okay, brethren? Father, we thank you so much for your truth that presents to us reality. Truth is reality as defined by your Word. And so we thank you for the fact that we don't need to be confused and lack clarity with regards to... um, how we need to flesh out marriage in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We thank you for the fact that you have given us your precious truth to allow us to recalibrate and to re-solidify in our hearts and reaffirm that which you've written from long ages ago. And so we thank you for that, that no matter culture or times changing or governments changing, that your truth is unchanging. And these are timeless principles that if we apply them to our lives, we know that we will experience true happiness as you define it and glorify you in the process. So we pray that you would help us to be soft and tender to these truths as we continue to learn together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brethren. Well, if you remember, we've gone from the crises that we are facing uh, in our country and really all over the world, but in our country in particular, with regards to attacks on the family. We then talked about God's design, right? That God has brought great clarity, obviously, to us through His Word. So we don't need to be confused about what His design is for marriage or family or parenting. And then we got into Genesis chapter 3, in session 3, if you remember, and we talked about the fall, what what went wrong, um, and how that impacted marriage. Those were the effects of the fall last week in session 4. And essentially the consequences that came upon man and woman and and really a cosmic reversal, right? Um, In the sense that God cursed the universe as we know it. And we went then into Romans chapter 8 and were reminded of the wonderful reality of the gospel, that the gospel is about not only delivering and rescuing people from hell and condemnation and redeeming us, but in the gospel as we submit to Christ we are now able to see our marriages redeemed for His glory. Amen? And that, hopefully that, that really encouraged you, the hope that we have, even in the midst of all the craziness that we see around us. So that was really a... a all of that, the first four weeks, was a, a biblical framework for understanding marriage and, and what we're going to get into today, which is individual roles. Okay? Today we want to get into the role and responsibilities of husbands. Next week, we'll get into the role and responsibilities of wives. And then the last uh, week, two weeks from today, we'll get a little bit into um, some general issues, including uh, marital intimacy, which I know is oftentimes very much a, um, a taboo topic, even in churches. But I think it's very important that we deal with that topic. The Bible addresses it, right, as I said at the banquet marital intimacy, so we should address it as well, okay? And hopefully two weeks from today in our last session for this workshop, we'll get some good uh, interaction as well, because I know that there's a lot of variables there. There's a lot to talk about, even with regards to marital intimacy, okay? So, but today we want to focus on the role and responsibilities of husbands. Remember, this is, this is um, within the framework of gospel transformed marriages, okay? So think about this. If you and I as husbands and wives don't submit ourselves to Jesus, then this stuff is pretty much irrelevant to us, right? It's not going to be very important. We'll get into that in Ephesians 5 in a few minutes. 
that the context even before the instructions to wives and to husbands, um, that context speaks of, of not being, uh, um, dis, uh, allowing uh, yourself to be dissipated, right? To be controlled by wine or any other issue for that matter. But that we need to be controlled and dominated by the Spirit of God. And then the following context then gets into wives and husbands and even children, okay? So we're going to talk about how we need to submit ourselves to Jesus first as husbands and wives, be abiding in Him, as we learned even at the banquet, if we are going to submit ourselves to these roles and responsibilities. Otherwise, they really don't make sense, right? If you don't have spiritual eyes to see that God is giving you through His Word, then these things are, are, going, to, are going to seem kind of dumb and foolish because the world portrays it that way, okay? Where you need to start, if that's where you're at, is, you know, where am I at with the Lord? Right? Am I really, have I really committed my life to Jesus? Am I really following after Him? Is He boss of my life? Or am I my own boss? So, gospel transformed marriages, role and responsibilities of husbands. Okay? And what we're going to look at in this particular uh, session with regards to husbands, um, this is not uh, original to me. It's been worded differently by different people. But I think it's a helpful way to understand this. Um, the, resp- the role and responsibilities for husbands really falls under three primary headings, okay? We are called to be, as gospel-transformed husbands, we are called to be leaders. We are called to be lovers of our wives and kids and families. And we are called to be learners, okay? So that's what that, we're going to hang our thoughts on those three headings, okay? So um, first of all, husbands are to lead, to be a man, and to be created a man, a male, um, and to be masculine. At the very core of that, brothers, is leading. Okay? Now, how that fleshes itself out in your life, it's different for every guy, every man. Okay? But to be masculine, to be a male, is to actually be created to lead. Some people say, well, not all guys are leaders. Well, it depends on what you mean by that, right? Yeah, not all guys follow their call to be leaders. But all men are called to lead, right? Even if you're a single guy right now, you're called to lead in different capacities. We'll talk a little bit about that. But if you're married, you're called to be the shepherd leader of your home. Let's put it that way. I love that. You're the shepherd of your family. You're the shepherd within the context of your home, right? So where do we get this idea of leadership or male headship? Obviously, we we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 20. Through 25, that God created man, right? And, and commanded him to rule, to govern, to be a steward of his creation. Right there, um, uh, explicit in that, is really the reality that man is called to lead, right? Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. You remember that particular passage. I think that's where um, God is speaking to Adam in Genesis three sixteen, And he says, or to the woman, rather, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That latter uh, part of that verse 16 of Genesis 3, remember we, we, um, we considered the fact that uh, whatever desire means, it's got to be the opposite of he will rule over you, right? You're going to want to take control of the steering wheel, but he will rule over you. It's more of a, uh, with a negative connotation. But implicit in that is the fact that men have been called to lead, right? Except that now, after sin, men are, have the, the fleshly tendency, I do, and I'm sure that you, could, you would agree with this, men, to dominate, 
right? To sort of put our, our, our foot down. We're either passive, passive-aggressive on the one extreme, or we are um, dictatorial as men. Both are, are distortions of God's original design, right? So, um, but from Genesis 3.16, I think implicit in there is the reality of male headship as well. Um, and then Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. Okay, the passage that we're going to get into extensively in a bit on husbands, right? Loving your wives. And on there, it says that the Genesis, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, the head of the wife. And then 1 Corinthians eleven three, which I put up on the screen for you. I want you to understand, Paul writes to the Corinthians, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And I put those, that, that word head in caps for you because that's a Greek word. Um, translated head there, kephale. It's got the idea of authority or headship. Okay? And going back to our conversation or our first workshop on the idea of complementarianism, right? The fact that men and women are created equal but we are a perfect, beautiful complement of one another, right? We're in this complementarian relationship of equality, but distinctions as far as roles and responsibilities. Going back to that, um, you might say husbands are called to lead, wives are called to follow, okay? So we get that from these texts that explicitly or implicitly imply the fact that there is male headship, and that is not a chauvinist idea, okay? There are a lot of people saying, well, chauvinism, that Paul, how can he possibly write in 1 Corinthians 11 that the man is the head of the woman? That, what, is she inferior or something? Again, ontological equality, right? And being essence and nature, man and woman are equal, ontological equality, but distinctiveness as far as roles and responsibilities, okay? So the fundamental principle here is to be a man is to be created to lead. Male headship. And we're going to see this, that it's a delegated leadership that God has given us. What do we mean by that? That it's for the express purpose of glorifying God as husbands by loving our wives. We'll see that in a minute. Okay, so it's not leadership like, hey, I'm the man, you know, hear me roar kind of a thing, right? It's the idea of you're called to lead your wife in a loving fashion to the glory of God. Okay, um, let me make a point too about biblical masculinity is about um, functional leadership. Okay, Biblical masculinity is about functional leadership. What do I mean by that? That there are a lot of men, and maybe you can think of some, okay, who sort of think that, you know, uh, by virtue of the fact that he's got big muscles, chest hair, a lot of intelligence or whatever, right, that he is ju- he, he just, he's already leading. But those things don't define masculinity in and of themselves, Right? Um, biblical masculinity is functional, meaning that you are, if you're truly being a masculine man, as God has defined masculinity biblically, you are fleshing out your God or God-given responsibilities, right? So you might say that if, you know, you know what you need to do as a husband, as a father, but if you're not fleshing out your responsibilities and your role in the context of the home, then you're not fleshing out biblical masculinity, Right? Yes, you're a man. Yes, you're a male. 
but you're not fleshing out. So biblical masculinity is functional in nature. We need to flesh out our roles and responsibilities. I think that's a really important point because there's a lot of men who are very passive in the home. Okay? But masculinity is functional. Are you fleshing out your leadership in the context of the home? Are you spiritually leading your family, right? Let's talk about some of these. How does, what does a functional leadership look like? Well, biblical masculinity or functional leadership means that as leaders, we initiate brothers. We initiate, okay? That doesn't mean at all times in everything, right? That um, we are the only ones doing everything. That doesn't mean that at all. You delegate that to your sweet wife, Right? There's areas where she's stronger in than you are in the context of the home. But at the end of the day, you are sort of the point man for the marriage and for the family. And so if something goes wrong, finances, intimacy, right, communication, it doesn't mean that it's all 100% the man's fault or the husband's fault. But it does mean that if we're the initiators, we want to make sure that we put together, lead and putting together a plan of attack as to how to grow in that particular area of our marriage. So... Biblical masculinity is functional leadership. You're fleshing out, initiating, being the initiating, leading your family. Okay? Leaders provide. Okay? We're the providers. Ultimately, we know that who is the one that provides? Our gracious God, right? Everything comes from Him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We understand that. But uh, uh, per Genesis chapter 2, God gave man the responsibility to work with his hands, to earn a living, right? There's nothing, there, there's something so God-glorifying about a Christian man who is a, 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 um, uh, a, 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 a gentleman working with the, the trash industry in our city, right? He's working with his hands. He's making a living. That glorifies God in the same way that me being a pastor, be, uh, a fleshing out ministry here with you guys also glorifies God. No matter what kind of a job you're talking about, God has called us as men to be individuals who provide for our families. Now, what does that mean? That we give them the American dream, a couple of cars, a couple of dogs, and, you know, cows. And uh, No, I mean, if you have that, wonderful, right? <clears throat> but obviously, we're, we're, we are concerned as men who are fleshing out functional leadership, biblical masculinity, to provide for the needs of our family, right? And so you need to know what those needs are. Do you know what those needs are that your family has? Not wants. It's not that even wants are, it's wrong to pursue wants, right? And to buy yourself something nice. It's not that that's sinful in and of itself, but we need to define what needs are, right? And so we lead as men in the context of the home and provide for our families. We also protect, protect. I mean, just think about the very makeup of, of a man and masculinity. We'll talk about this later on, but generally speaking, men are stronger physically than women, right? I think part of that is who, who do you see in Scripture going, going, going heads with people who are messing with, with God's people? It's the men, right? The men are going to war. Again, it's not that any woman going to war is sinful. We're not saying that. We're saying generally speaking, men are in their physical makeup stronger so, and why is that? Because God has created us to be protectors, men. We protect. Not only physically, if somebody would attack your wife, of course, that, that's a given, right? But also protect them spiritually, right? Protect them from ideologies, right? If we're the shepherds who are leading our family and our, and our marriages, and we want to be making sure that we are setting parameters in our home, right? Not in a controlling, dictatorial fashion. Again, that's where we can go and and use our authority in the wrong kind of way and to control, 
All of us need to work on that. But in the sense of having a plan of attack, how are you going to protect your, the thinking of your family, right? Um, what goes on in the context of your home? We are the ones who ought to flesh out functional leadership, biblical masculinity in terms of protecting our families, okay? Um, leaders direct. Leaders direct. Um, I've known a lot of guys, and this is one of the things that we deal with in counseling, where, you know, the, to use an example, the wife, uh, I'll ask them, hey, so how, how are things with, as far as like engaging your kids, having conversations? Oh, well, my wife is really good about that. You know, she, she's really good about, you know, reading the Bible with the little one or leading our devotionals. And, and I usually will say, well, why do you think it's your wife's responsibility to do that primarily? I say, well, my wife can do that too. She's very, absolutely. I said, absolutely. But you are the one who is to direct your family in the area of even spiritual leadership. So I'll ask like, where, so where do you see you and your family heading in the next one year or five years or 10 years? I'll ask men that. To sort of, to, when we're talking about these leadership principles in the context of your home, what is your plan of attack for the next? Where do you see your family in a decade, right? Certainly the Lord can take you out. One of you gets really sick and he takes you home, right, to be with him. But do you have a sense of dire- where, where, what you're directing your family toward? That, that holds true men for um, even uh, involvement in the context of the local church. Are you directing your family towards involvement in the church, right? So you fill in the blank. Whatever the issue is, whatever the item is, are you fleshing out biblical masculinity by directing your family, leading your family in a direction? You all, the reality of it is that we are leading our families in a direction, right? Oftentimes, if we're just being passive, then we're just allowing things to happen to our families. And in that sense, we are directing our families too, but through our passive leadership. So any questions on this particular? Let me just pause there on, on this function of uh, leadership. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Great question. Do you guys hear that? How can a wife, if, if this is leadership, how can a wife come alongside of her husband if she sees a deficiency? Have you ever been there, ladies, where you see a deficiency in your husband's leadership? Come on, everybody can do it. Both, both legs, you know. My, my honey, too, she can do it. You know, as men, right, think about this. Our wives are called to follow you. My wife is called to follow me. Me, sinful, fallen, Campus Hernandez, right? Sinner saved by grace. That's pretty, pretty huge. And so think about the level of trust, right? If you're married, that your wife has in, in, uh, for, to, uh, unto the Lord in following after your leadership. So what about those moments when there are deficiencies? I think that... Um, Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of wives, husbands being a, a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. Obviously, um, the church is not, is not um, speaking against Jesus or questioning Jesus' leadership or calling Jesus to the carpet because he's got some weakness. So that's where that, that picture and portrait um, sort of falls, falls short a little bit. It's not the exact equivalent. But think about this. As wives, you do have a, a wonderful opportunity to also be a a source, a means by which God sanctifies your husband. 
How is that as a Holy Spirit in his life, right? There's the Proverbs woman who basically is like an ongoing drop upon her husband's head, nagging, nagging, nagging. I think you, you ladies know how to push your husband's buttons, right? You know what will get him going the negative way. But you know what will be helpful. I think every wife fleshes that out very differently, and I think it is appropriate. There's been some philosophies where I've heard that with this leadership uh, principle, well, the wife then is never allowed, she should never say anything to her husband about anything. I don't agree with that. I think it's the way and the motive that she may have coming to her husband. But I invite that from my wife. If she's my companion, she's my equal, she's my co-partner in life, my best friend, I can go on and on with Andrea about that. I want Andrea. I, I know she's for me. There's that trust issue. So if Andrea says something, I listen. You know what I mean? And I invite her input. And I know that she's going to choose her words really wisely. So I think as, as, um, as wives, I would not say that this means if the husband is the leader, you never say anything. And that biblical submission or following your husband means you never say a thing. You just be quiet, ladies. I don't think that. I think you always, Ephesians chapter 4, right, says that um, we should um, let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouths, but only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's Ephesians 4.29. I think um, you can speak, but how you do it, when you do it, even timing-wise, right, and your motivation are equally important. It's not just, well, I need to say something. It's like, well, how's my heart in that moment? Have I examined myself before the Lord if it's an issue that I know that my husband may get a little amped up about, right? Is this the right timing, right? Some of you husbands are not night guys, right? More morning guys. I tend to be that way. I'm not necessarily the, 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 the most lovely person at night, late at night to talk to, okay? But early in the morning, I can have a, a pretty profound conversation at 4 a.m., <laughs> you know? And I know some of us are wired that way. Most of us are not. But what's the point? That if you as a wife are going to come and encourage your husband, try to find the time that you know. You know your hubby, right? You know your hubby better than anyone except the Lord. You know when, when are those moments of weakness, okay? So find a good time to be able to come alongside of him, right? And then for us husbands, I would say to my sister's question that we need to be open to our wives' input and invite it. We'll talk about that a little bit later in First Peter chapter 3. Um, not only are husbands leaders, but we are called to be lovers or to love our families, to love our wives. A couple of key verses, interestingly. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives. Notice that it doesn't even say husbands, lead your wives first. This husbands, love your wives. Agape your wives, right? That divine love, that love of, of unconditional affection. The love of action. That's what agape is. Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. We'll look at that later. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. I love that. So what does this love look like? It's a self-sacrificial love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. Christ showed us a very different kind of love, right? The world says, take, take, take. Or what have you done for me lately? What did Jesus do? Jesus gave himself up for his church, for his people. And Paul's point is, you husbands need to do the same thing. You need to have a self-sacrificial kind of love for your wife. Lay down your life for your wife, right? Um, Christ set the pattern and the model for us. So 
Um, we don't lay down our lives for our wives because they deserve it in the same way that, right, vice versa, the other way around as well. It's as unto the Lord. Think about that. Christ didn't lay down his life for his church because we deserved it. It's grace. It's unmerited favor and kindness shown toward us, right? So Jesus laid down his life willingly and voluntarily, and I would say joyfully. Obviously, we're, ne- we're never going to measure up to Jesus perfectly, right, men? But the reality of it is agape love, Ephesians 5.25 kind of love, is this love of choice. It's a love that is voluntary. It's a love that we, we tend to love people or love entities or whoever because we deem them worthy of our love. Think about that, right? I used to go to foreign countries um, to feature gospel center churches and what they were doing to reach their community for Jesus, poverty-stricken areas and all of that. So I would take these, I would take these millionaire donors, mostly believers but some non-believers, and I would often hear when they're sharing testimonies, and, and the, the intent was a good one, but they would often say, you know, these people, they, they, they're worthy of our, of our affection. They're worthy of our love, right? It's like, well, and so we would do some devotionals. Ultimately, biblical love is the love of choice. It's not because you deem them worthy of your love that you love them, right? It's because of the fact that God has commanded you to love, and Jesus has set the pattern and the model for you to love. And his church wasn't seeking after him. Right? We were running the opposite direction. The church is the people of God. Redeemed sinners saved by grace like us. We were running the opposite direction. Think about the implications of that for the way that you love your spouse, the way that you love your wife, husbands, the way that I love my wife. Right? It's not when, well, she's, 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 really, she's really performing well these days, you know, so I'm going to love her. Right? I'm going to serve her well because she served me, so I'm going to serve her and return the favor. That's, that's worldly, fleshly kind of love. That's self-centered kind of love. Right? So it's the agape is the love of choice, the love that is really divine, that God has poured out within our hearts through His Spirit. According to uh, uh, Romans chapter 5, it's an agape kind of love that only God can, can give us the grace to flesh out. It's also a sanctifying love. I love this. Ephesians 5, 26, so that He might sanctify her. Jesus um, died for His church so that He might sanctify her. Think about this. He doesn't even say so that he might redeem her, right? So that he might rescue her from hell. So so that he might sanctify her. The word sanctification or sanctify there has the idea of being set apart. Set apart from sin, now for God's purposes. So the reason why Jesus died for you and died for me, right, as the church, is so that he might set us apart for himself. To be holy, to be pure, having cleansed her. Uh, by the washing of water with the word. Isn't that what Christ does for us, brethren, on a regular basis? There's this cleansing reality that the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, is cleansing us as we're exposed to the word and we are being purified and we are becoming more and more like Jesus as we're washed daily because of, our, of, of the dirt of our sin daily. And then verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Think about that. So the implication is, if marriage is to be a picture of Christ and his church, right, from before the foundation of the world, that was the design, then men, part of our uh, love for our, our wives is this sanctifying kind of love. Now, are we the ones that are making the changes in our wife's heart? No, right? It's the Spirit of God doing that who lives inside of them. But you, you, you and I are called to talk to our wives about 
Scripture. Talk to, talk to them about biblical things. You say, well, we've never really had that pattern. Hey, start today, right? Start little by little. We're doing daily Bible reading as a church. Um, one brother earlier shared with me some things that he and his wife are learning as they read through the Bible together now. I mean, that's awesome, right? He's leading in that capacity. Washing his wife with the word, so to speak, right? Um, because it, we, it should be that by the end of whenever the Lord takes us home as husbands and wives, that your wife should actually be more like Christ because she was married to you. Think about that. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? Is my wife today more holy, more godly, more like Jesus because the Lord's used me in her life to bring her to the Word and even to challenge her by way of my example and all of that? That all, whenever I think about that, I get really convicted, brothers. I really do. Am I doing enough, right, by the grace of God, not by my own strength, to, so that Andrea is more and more like Jesus? It's our responsibility. It's a sanctifying kind of love. It's a caring love. It's a caring love. And by care, we're talking about physical acts, kindness. Okay, not just, well, I really care about her theoretically. You know, I really care. I, I, I don't have to convince you of that. But are you fleshing that out in the way that you care for her needs? Look at, look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. I love this. You know, notice what he says in verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Why does he say that? Why does he put it that way? Because you and I as husbands don't have a problem, do we, taking care of ourselves every day. Did you wake up this morning and have something to eat? Men, did you take a shower? Did you take a cold shower? Icy? No, you put nice warm water for yourself, right? Um, We can go on and on. You provide for yourself quite well, and I provide for myself quite well. And so he says, you need to love your wife in action in the same way. The same things that you do for yourself, you ought to be doing them for your wife first. So I've always thought this, that a good rule of thumb is, and this is going to be very convicting as well for all of us, if I'm hungry, chances are my wife is hungry too, right? If I um, am discouraged about a particular situation, chances are my wife is discouraged about a particular situation. If... There's a discouragement about one of the kids over the years. Chances are she's burdened about that as well. Am I asking her about that? Am I loving her by um, engaging her in those particular areas, caring for those particular physical needs that she may have? No one ever hated his own flesh. We don't hate our own bodies, right? We nourish and we cherish our bodies. We take care of ourselves. We pamper ourselves even as husbands. How oftentimes do you realize, you know, my wife has the same need. Have I really gone out of my way to... Make her a hot meal, right? To serve her. Just as Christ also does the church. And ultimately the picture is Jesus. Jesus nourishes, cherishes his church. And he does it because we are members of his body. See the, see the correlation, right? We are one in, our, in marriage. We, are, we need to flesh out functional oneness from Genesis chapter 2. So she and I, you might see two people here, right? Or if you're sitting next to your your husband or wife right now, there's two people, but you're actually, in the eyes of the Lord, you're actually one person. So in the same way that husbands, you care for yourself, you need to care for your wife. Why? Because she's a member of you. You're a member of her. You're one. And the ultimate picture of that is Christ and his body. 
It's also a committed love. A committed love for this reason. This is a quotation from what particular text? Anybody? Genesis chapter 2, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Back in Genesis 2, we talked about the principle of leaving and cleaving. That, right? In marriage, you're to leave your parents, not in the sense that you stop having a relationship with them, loving them, none of that, but in the sense that now your primary relationship is your spouse. So husbands, right? We leave our father and mother, and we now cling to our fused or glued to our own wife, and there's this commitment, committed love that we should be fleshing out. So this is where the whole... You know, people are so quick these days, honestly, to pull the trigger on divorce. Divorce for all reasons, even if there's a, somebody commits a, a, has, has a, an affair right away, if it's two professing believers, well, they have grounds for divorce, right? And my response to that always is, yeah, at face value, if you're a believer and, and, and another, your spouse has, has, had a, has committed adultery, right? At face value, by the letter of the law, yeah, you have grounds, but, you're, but it's about your heart, and it's about whether you are even willing to work through a process of, of uh, if, if that person is repentant, to restore the marriage. Why, why do we believe that? Because of texts like these, right? That we don't just walk away from one another. We do everything we can, even in counseling, to preserve a marriage. Short of keeping somebody in a situation where they're being physically hurt, right? We don't do that. We remove that person from that situation. But also, we need to be so careful that that our, our, um, our natural reaction and response is, well, divorce. Well, what, these texts mean something, right? Verse 31, it means something. From back in Genesis, remember when the, even the uh, religious leaders come up to Jesus in Matthew 19? Hey, you know, Moses said that we can give our wives a certificate of divorce. Even Moses said it, Jesus. And Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses said that. But from the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, right? It has not been this way. So because of a broken, fallen world, God has made provision for legal divorce. Provision, not escape. He has not give us, given us an out. There's a difference. There's a provision or there's an out. We need to make sure that people understand provision rather than, well, I just want it out of this marriage. I'm so glad that they went and did this because now I accomplished what I wanted, right? That is not committed love. What does God say in Malachi? I what divorce? I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Unqualified. I hate divorce, says the Lord. So I think we need to be very careful not to pull the trigger so quickly, excuse me, on on pursuing divorce. Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. A word of caution. So notice a sacrificial, self-sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, a caring love, a committed love. A word of caution for us as husbands. Here's the Achilles heel of marriage, brothers, and even what will deflate this love. Okay, it's the poison of a bitter spirit. Colossians 3.19, and we can all identify with this. Okay, so don't even tell me that you never struggle with any bitterness, brothers. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives. There's your agape love. And do not be embittered against them. See that little... That little word there, and, connects the love, the action of this agape love towards your wives with the reality of 
what's going to be the, the, um, the deflator of that kind of love is going to be bitterness of the heart. Do not be embittered against him, he says. Nothing will deflate your love for your wife or diminish your ability to love your wife, brothers, if you hold on to unforgiveness in the heart. Right? And there's so many different reasons that we get bitter, right? Lack of intimacy, unmet expectations, unforgiveness for past hurts, disagreements, right? Even maybe disagreements on the training of the kids when they're little, especially. There's some disagreements with, I've counseled young couples, especially. There is that, and the husband really holds on to that, right? Like she just kind of lets them get away with murder, you know? And he's been holding on to that. He begins to bring all the examples. We can get bitter about that. What's the answer to this? The answer to this is put off those things, right? In Colossians 3, 8, in the context, previous context of this particular instruction of Colossians 3, 19, he talks about putting off the old men and putting on the new men, putting on the, the righteousness, the practical righteousness that Christ requires of us as men. So you can't hold on to things and stew on those things for years and then think that you're actually going to be loving your wife in the way that God has called you to love her, right? This is a huge, huge Achilles heel for in marriages, brothers. Unforgiveness, right? For past hurts, things that you don't feel that your wife is doing that she should be doing enough. Unmet expectations are huge. By the way, um, when uh, George Lawson, my brother George Lawson, does the men's conference on, um, what is it, April what? April 19th and 20th, I think it is. That Saturday, you ladies are going to be meeting here with Jennifer Lawson, his wife, who's going to be doing a workshop. You guys are going to have like a breakfast brunch. You're going to be doing a workshop on uh, unmet expectations and how to have joy in the midst of unmet expectations. It's a huge thing. It's not just for wives, though, men. It's for us as well, right? Things that we expected. We, we foresaw our marriage being a certain way. And it's almost as if God has given us a short end of the stick and we become bitter and resentful. We allow bitter roots in our hearts. We need to be dealing with that. And God commands us to make sure that we're dealing with that. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble if we don't. Bless you. Roles and... Bless you again. (laughs) Roles and responsibilities of husbands, right? We are leaders, lovers, learners. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This is... I know every single one of these has been convicting, but this is always very convicting to me. Husbands are called to be students of their wife. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, he just instructed wives. We'll look at the wives next week. But he just instructed wives, in the same way, live with your wives. The sense there is continually dwell with her, cohabit with her, right? Live with her. How? In an understanding way. Literally, what that means is according to knowledge. According to knowledge. So, in other words, there is a a certain body of information and insight that we need to keep in mind about our wives that's going to help us be better shepherd leaders in our home. That's going to allow us to be tender leaders in our home. And what is that body of information, right? There's essential and beneficial information that you need to know about your wife. What does it consist of? I think first... We've seen this a little bit. We need to study the wife's role as husbands. If you're going to live tenderly with your wife, live with her according to knowledge, right? In a way that is sensitive to her, then we need to understand her role. 
And that's why we went back and gave a biblical framework of the wife's role. Next week, we'll look at that as well, specifically. Right? That she's our companion. She's our partner in life and ministry. She's not someone to dominate over. She's not someone to lord it over her. Right? She's our partner in life. She's our best friend. She's our companion. She's our closest confidant. Secondly, we need to understand who she is as a person. Right? The more that we know our wives the more that we're going to be equipped to love them and to lead them. And so what are some questions that, you know, we should know about our wives? What are her strengths and weaknesses? Do you know how your wife is wired, men? Do you know how your wife is wired? What moves her? What encourages her? What discourages her? What deflates her in life? What does she love doing? What does she definitely not like doing, right? What are her deepest desires and goals and passions in life? What is it that drives her? Have you had conversations with your wife over the years about some of those things? Do you know? What makes her tick in life? What motivates her? Again, what encourages or discourages her most? Right? All of those questions necessitate that we, are, that we be students of our wife. Husbands you know, love to study many things. We love to study cars and sports and movies and hobbies and money, how to make more money to provide or to give to the Lord. Of course, that's a good thing. Electronic gadgets, books, construction projects, right? We love as men to do all kinds of different things and study all of these things. Do you love to study your wife? Do you know her well? On a human level, the most important subject matter that you ought to be studying is your wife. She's our greatest subject matter. Is that your heart, brothers? Right? When we were dating, we did, th- we, did, we did that, didn't we? Remember? Do you remember back when you were dating, when I was dating? It's like, no. <laughs> that was a long time ago, huh, brother? <laughs> but do you remember how you were wooing her, right? We were wooing our wives, asking them, what are your 10 greatest dreams, you know? We wanted to make sure we came across like we really, really care. And we did care, but, you know, you... You were even going above and beyond, right? So we did everything that we could to get to know our wives, to understand them, to woo them and all of that. And we were doing it sincerely because we loved them, right? We cared about them. Maybe the Lord had impressed upon your heart that she was the one, right? And then when you, letters or birthday cards or whatever, you dissected every single word, every single, you know, exclamation mark that she wrote to you and all of that, you know? I think that we need to really fight, brothers, to have that kind of a, kind of a response to our wives even now and to the point that we want to know them to that like, same capacity. And I'm sure you would agree that none of us are what we should be in that area. Um, I think he further clarifies what he means by continually living with her in an understanding way according to knowledge. He says, um, first and foremost, I think that this body of information is this that you need to live with your wife understanding that she's different. What's going to help me be more tender, more sensitive toward my wife? Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, understand this body of information that she is different than you are. Think about that. <laughs> you know, So many uh, examples of this, but you know, oftentimes we, 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 it's like, honey, honey, just get over it. You know, That wasn't that big of a deal. Well, for us as husbands, because we're masculine, we're males, not better, right? We're masculine. We might not consider certain things a big deal. But for our wives, they're feminine, right? She's, she's noticed in verse 7, um, according to knowledge, as with someone weaker, 
a weaker vessel, he says. She's different than you are. By the way, the someone, a weaker vessel here isn't that she's inferior. It isn't that she's less intelligent. It's speaking here of physical makeup. That's what it's talking about. Because if it was anything else, then Peter would be contradicting even the Genesis account, wouldn't he? So don't ever see this as with someone weaker as, oh, she's, she's not as smart as I am. No, she's inferior. Yeah, us men, we are the guys, you know? It's like, no. Physically, in her physical makeup, she's weaker, right? Generally speaking, that's the case. And then he says, since she is a woman, is Peter being a chauvinist here? It's like, she's a woman, you know? That's not what he's saying. He says, she's woman. She's, he's, he's, state, he's making a statement of fact here. She's a woman. She, you're man. She's woman. She's feminine. She's not like you. And oftentimes I think a lot of the problems, husband, is like we expect our wives to be strong in a certain way or in a, uh, you fill in the blank, whatever the issue is in your marriage, and we forget about the fact that, well, yeah, we had, the Lord has wired me in a certain way. You know, one of the great examples for me as a pastor is, you know, God has not called um, women to be in pastoral leadership. Okay? Are women just as capable, good teachers, everything? Yes, 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 yes. But God has not called women to be in pastoral, elder, overseer leadership. And so oftentimes for me, this is a great reminder passage for me. I don't want to ever unload on my wife things that I know that, sh- that her, as capable as she is in, in other areas, that she, God hasn't wired her to be an elderette or a pastorette. So people will often come up to my wife and like, well, you know what's going on, right? And Andrea's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know? Because I don't want to unload on my wife information that she's not able to, to bear up under. And there's things that I'm not able to bear up under in the same way that she can as a, as a woman, the way that God has made her. So you fill in the blank in terms of your own marriage, right? <clears throat> if you remember that your wife is different, then you're not going to impose on her expectations that God has not put on her. You're masculine, she's feminine. She's different, Okay. Um, also, here's another body of information. Live with your wife, not only understanding that she's different, but live with your wife, valuing her as your equal companion. Remember that. Valuing her as your equal companion. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. See that? I think we really fall short in this area, brothers, of showing honor, having a sense of uh, esteeming our wives, considering them fragile and, and precious before the Lord, right? They're fragile. They're precious. They're feminine. So here, this is not, again, Peter, um, whether this particular latter part of verse 7 or before that, being a chauvinist or anything like that, or putting her down. He's, he's mainly saying she's fragile, she's feminine. These are her womanly aspects of biblical femininity. Honor her as such. Honor her. The fact that she's different in, um, in function doesn't mean that she's any less than you are, right? Honor her. Treat them as precious. Give them that special place in their life. We're to treat our wives with respect, with kindness, with courtesy, the courtesy that befits a person who holds a unique place in our lives, right? Think about the way that men, um, we treated our moms. Or the, maybe the way that you treat your mom. Uh, you, don't, you don't mistreat your mom. Hopefully you don't mistreat your mom. 
You love her. She's precious to you, right? You, you, you cherish your mom. Oftentimes men don't, don't translate that into the marriage. So that's all about my mom. But now the main relationship in marriage is your wife. She is to take the highest place of honor in your, in your, in, in your life, not your mom, right? You can still continue to honor your mom and always cherish and treasure her. And as godly men, we always want to do that. But remember that the, the, the main female in your life now is your wife. By the way, the kids, oftentimes we elevate the kids, even imperceptibly, subtly, like the kids become everything. We honor the kids by giving them the time and giving them the resources that your wife should be getting first and foremost. So we need to be careful not to elevate others above our wives in the context. She is the most important person, right? And obviously... It's hard when we get into counseling and, and, and the wife is saying, I just don't feel like he really honors me. And it's hard because it almost sounds self-serving. But then when you see the way that the man, the husband is responding to her, it's like, I see what you're saying. He doesn't value you. you shame on you, right? God's word calls you to honor your wife. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. The grace which consists of life. God gave her um, woman just like she, he gave man life, the gift of life. He's saying here, honor her because she's a fellow heir of that wonderful gift that God has given life. Honor her that way. She's not a second-class citizen of equal importance, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross for both husbands and wives. No one stands on higher ground. Men, may we never even give our wives that sense, even passively, that somehow we are better than they are, right? Now, we're given a motivation in case any of us are digging in our heels and saying, well, you don't know how she is, you know? You don't know my wife. You know, I don't know your wife. I really don't. But I know what God's Word is calling us to, right? And um, there's, here's a, a caution, a word of caution. Is, I call it the temporarily out-of-service caution. Right? A bitter and sensitive spirit on the part of a husband impacts our spiritual walk before the Lord. If we're bitter, insensitive not valuing our wife, right, characteristically, then guess what? That's going to impact our spiritual connection with the Lord. Oftentimes I think, man, as I'm interacting with, with in counseling, I'm sorry to keep um, bringing examples of, of uh, in counseling, but I'm t- just to emphasize to you that this, is, this happens, right? And, may, and it, I'm sure it's happened in your own interactions with people. Husbands will sit there and they'll say things like, you know, but even though things are like this, I want you to know that everything is wonderful with the Lord. Everything is great. So they're sitting there in counseling, you know, some on the verge of divorce, and they're telling me that they have a wonderful, vibrant, growing relationship with the Lord. And I, I'm like, you know, wrong answer. That's not the reality because of a verse like this that says, if you are an insensitive husband characteristically, right, without owning up to that in humility, your prayers will be hindered. Your connection with God, it's almost as if God's going to say, hey, put the phone down. Go, go address my, my daughter, okay? Go talk to my daughter because I care about the way that you treat her. And until that happens, you and I are not okay. Like, like we used to say to our kids growing up, right? A couple of our boys would be duking it out and one of them comes over, he's like, oh, daddy, I love you. You know, and I'm like, I love you too, son. Now go work things out with your, with your brother or you and I are not going to be okay. Okay, there's going to be some boom-booms. You know what I'm saying? Some spankings if you don't deal with that. We did it as parents, This is the same idea here. We have a heavenly father who loves his daughter just as much as he loves his son. And he says, husband, son, go 
address and deal with that, uh, make that right with my daughter and then come back, right? This is a warning, brothers, temporarily out of service. We don't want to be walking in a bitter and sensitive spirit because it does impact our spiritual walk. So note, I know we went pretty fast. Gospel transformed husbands are leaders, lovers, and learners, right? Our greatest subject matter are our wives, and we need a lot of grace, don't we, to be able to flesh that out. Questions? Yes, ma'am. How do we respond when those things are not happening in the marriage, right? Next week, we're going to get into that in the previous verses of 1 Peter 3. One, um, I think that the biggest thing, sister, is always, I think, Scripture would call you or your husband, but would call us to examine ourselves before him, right? What can I do to make sure that I am not contributing to the issues that are taking place? I think we always have that responsibility before the Lord. The other thing is obviously entrusting ourselves to the Lord. First um, Peter 3, 1 through 6 is going to talk about that. The women of old, he says, back from way yonder, the women have always entrusted themselves to the Lord. I think um, if, if you've already, if the wife has talked to her husband about these matters in, in the right kind of way, and he still doesn't listen, I do think that that is where the shepherds of your church come in. I, I do. I don't think that... I don't think that we take that Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, a passage serious enough that says that we need to obey our leaders. Why? For they keep watch over our souls. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that will be unprofitable for you. But the idea that um, we shepherd your souls, what does that mean? That means even in marriage issues. So I think you lovingly, after you've you've appealed to him, right? I think that there is that there is room there for um, uh, inviting someone else to speak into his life. But the way that you do it, I think, is super important, right? Um, because I've known wives that that's all they ever do. They go and they talk to a 100 different people about the issues that are going on, and they never talk to their husbands. We don't want to do that. That's where the self-examination thing comes in. Trusting in the Lord, obviously. And then I think you do, and that's where the church is central. The church family is central. We center our lives on the redeemed people of God, the community of believers who are bearing the same burdens that we're bearing. That's why small groups are important. Even encouraging our spouse to, and freeing them up to be able to position themselves to um, be in a small group where other men or other women can speak into their lives, right? So it's not just one thing, right? It's, a, it's an array of things, tackling that from different angles. Um, and to be honest with you, over the years, I mean, I've been in situations where we have had to go church discipline somebody. Because we went through all of that, we worked with the person, and the man was still abdicating his role, he's being mean-spirited, he's sinning against his wife, and after walking through Matthew 18, we actually ended up church disciplining somebody and saying, look, this man has completely abdicated his spiritual leadership in his home, and Christ has given us his loving instructions about what, what, what to deal, how to deal with someone who is a professing believer who is living in known unrepentant sin, and they're not turning from that, Right? I think that that those are some, hopefully, some helpful things. And next week, we'll get a little bit into that as well. Any other questions?
Well, you're always welcome to email. Yes, ma'am. Sister, I didn't hear the first part. Can you summarize that one for me? What's the question? That's a real war right there, man. Wow. <laughs> That's like UCLA, USC, back from where I'm from. Republican, Democrat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, sometimes we overthink these things. If there's a disagreement, whether it's Democrat versus Republican, I have no idea how, by the way, you could actually be a Democrat these days and be a Christian. I know that there, I'm, what I'm saying is there are Christians who are Democrats, but how you can justify that? Because so much of everything is, is right now based upon um, um, issues, right? You're a Democrat or Republican based upon the, the, some of the main issues. So that's a hard one. Back in the day, you could have 70s and 80s. You, you had some Christians who were Democrats, and you might say, well, I mean, based upon this or this, that's why they're, they're, they're professing Democrats, right? But that's a side note. I don't even know what I'm going off on that one. Um, I think we, sometimes we overthink th- things, and I do think that it's helpful to bring somebody else who you trust and love, and maybe that's your pastor, Maybe that's a brother or sister in Christ who love you guys, right, or that, that couple. And I think, I, I don't know why we're, we're, um, we're hesitant about doing that. There's the, there's the other side of gossiping to everybody and telling everybody about the disagreements that a couple is having rather than just going to a particular source, first to the Lord, and secondly, right, our Father knows our spouse better than we do. Our spouse knows their heart better than we do. Our... our um, our Father knows, uh, can actually do something about that, that to change our spouse's heart, and we can't. Why do we go to everybody else except the, the Father? But then secondly, God has placed people in our lives who might be very helpful in particular areas. I think that we need to humble ourselves, and we've sought counsel over the years on various issues because we, we don't have all the knowledge, my wife and I. We want to act as mentors and people who my wife sought godly women, right, in the context of the church, same thing with me. Mentors are godly men. I think that's, that's the humble thing to do. Not go tell everybody everything, right? And you certainly don't want to do that without talking to your spouse first. I think that's where the trust is cultivated. But I think going and seeking counsel is a good thing, right? There's wisdom in the abundance of counselors, the right kinds of counselors, right? So, all right, I'm going to pray for us. If you have any questions, we still have some time after, uh, more informal. And um, let me pray for us. Okay, Father, thank you so much for the reminder for us as husbands of the treasure that our wives are, that they are to be nourished and cherished and valued. Father, thank you for your truth, your word, that speaks so clearly about these things. We want to continue to just be people who, especially men, who are walking in a Christ-like fashion, 
who are leading, loving, and studying our wives and learning how to care for them in a, in a greater way so that we might be more sensitive and tender to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.